Today I'll be speaking with Jocko Willink. Jocko is a former Navy SEAL. He was a Navy SEAL for 20 years and commanded a unit of SEALs in the Battle of Ramadi, which is often acknowledged to be the toughest battle in our war in Iraq. And the unit he commanded became the most decorated special operations unit in that war. Jocko is also a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and really is just a rare authority on violence, its application in the world, the practical reality of it, the ethical imperative of it in certain circumstances. So it was a great privilege to speak to Jocko. I found our two hours together extremely useful, and uh, I hope you feel the same way. I now give you Jocko Willink. So I'm here with Jocko Willink. Jocko, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me on. First of all, I, congratulations on everything. You are exploding. Your, your book has exploded. Your podcast, the Jocko podcast, has exploded. All in uh, very quick succession. So the world has decided it needs more Jocko. That's awesome. I'm very happy for you. It's interesting to watch unfold. Like most people, I first heard of you on the, uh, the Tim Ferriss podcast. And then you very shortly after that did one with Joe Rogan. And I would just say to our listeners, if, if you haven't heard those interviews, those are actually five hours of interviews, I think two with Tim and three with Joe, I recommend that you do that because you, uh, I'm going to make an, a serious effort here not to duplicate those interviews. And those interviews were just awesome. So, you know, Jocko and I will wait for you. Go off and listen to five hours of Tim and Joe and we'll be right here. So your book, which also we're not going to talk about much, but which I, uh, I love, I'm about two-thirds the way through it, is called Extreme Ownership. And this is now part of a, a really a wave of Navy SEAL books. I've read a few of the other ones, American Sniper and Lone Survivor, uh, and I think a couple of others. And, uh, but what's unique about your book is that you, this is not just a battlefield memoir. You are very explicitly relating the lessons learned as a commander of Navy SEALs to business and leadership in general. And so that's a very unique angle. And I recommend that people, again, read that book. And this conversation will be no substitute for reading that book. One question on that is there has been traditionally a a taboo around SEALs writing books and even talking about their careers. Has the taboo been lifted or did you have to be very careful in how you approached writing the book and have some of these other books not been so careful? I mean, what's happening with publishing and Navy SEALs? Well, the way I was raised in the SEAL teams was that you didn't talk about your job and you didn't, you definitely didn't go out and write books. And you just were the, the, the term that they fed us, which I ate and enjoyed and believed was you, you are a quiet professional. That was mm. the, the ethos of how we carried ourselves. So this idea of the quiet professional, you know, you do your job, you do what you're supposed to do, obviously doesn't entail writing books about what you do. Now, starting in the nineties, a guy named Richard Marcinko, Dick Marcinko wrote a book called Rogue Warrior. And this was after he had had a little bit of a rough exit from the Navy and had gotten in some trouble. And that book was huge, but and it definitely was, I would say, looked down upon by people within the community, within the SEAL teams that, you know, this guy, you shouldn't go write a book. And so that's what I grew up with. Now, since the 9-11 and the, the war on terror has happened, obviously there's been more books by SEALs, by special operations guys across the board, by military people. So I think that there's just people want to know what we do and how we do it. And when I say we, I mean people in the military and 
I, I think that's why there's been some more books published on this subject. For Leif and I, Leif is the person that I wrote the book with. Right. He's another SEAL. We worked together on our last, on my last deployment to Iraq, and we both ended up in positions where we were teaching leadership inside the SEAL teams. Hmm. He was teaching it to the junior officers that were coming out of the basic SEAL pipeline, and I was teaching it to the more advanced SEALs that were actually in platoons getting ready to deploy to Iraq and Afghanistan. So we had crystallized this knowledge from deployment, and we doctrinalized it really not to the full extent that we probably should have, but guys were always asking us, hey, do you have these lessons learned written down anywhere? And eventually we did put them down, but then when we got out, we, we both left the military. We both started working with, we formed a company. We were working with various businesses and the businesses that we were helping with their leadership started asking the same question. Do you have this written down? Mm. Is there any documentation on this? And eventually we said, okay, we got to write this stuff down. And that's what we did. And that's what ended up being the book. Well, again, it, it's a fascinating book and, and, and fusion of a a war memoir with just the principles of, of leadership and, and just a straight up business book. So I, I recommend you guys check it out. But we're not going to talk about any of that. I want to talk about violence. I want to talk about violence really at every scale from war to personal self-defense. I think we'll probably focus on war mostly, but you really strike me as someone who's in a unique position to give a very informed opinion on violence at every scale. And Although you're probably not an authority now, if you ever were one, on what it's like to feel vulnerable as a, a man in our society. I mean, you're not the, the, a prime candidate for a mugging, unless it's going to be uh, Hicks and Gracie and his, his five friends mugging you in the parking lot. So um, you may be out of touch with um, certain realities that people confront in their lives. But for everything from just you know being a jiu-jitsu black belt to being a Navy SEAL who saw serious combat, there's there's just violence at every scale, and even between those two extremes, there's law enforcement, which you know I heard you describe. I think it was in your book or in one of those interviews, maybe both, that part of your deployment to Iraq had the character of Baghdad SWAT, right? So it was, it was less war making and more just sort of order making, and that comes with its own constraints, ethical and tactical, and so. Let's just fill in a little bit of your background for people who did not take the assignment and go listen to five hours of you with Joe and Tim. When did you join the military, and did you actually know you wanted to be a SEAL going in, or was that a later development? Yes, I knew I wanted to join the SEAL teams. I wanted to be some kind of a commando my whole life since I was a little kid, since I can remember wanting to do anything significant. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be some kind of a commando, some kind of a soldier, and as I researched and I, I, research is a strong word. As I found more out about the military, eventually I found out about the SEAL teams and it was allegedly the hardest and the most difficult. And so that's what I went into. I think people know a fair amount about the SEALs at this point, I, again, because of all the books and, and the related films. But just give me the lay of the land here. So is it in fact the single most elite force in the military or are there analogous special ops forces and the other branches that are every bit as uh, rigorous? Or is, is there some actual hierarchy that's acknowledged even by non-SEALs that SEAL training is, for whatever reason, pushing people to the highest standard of training? You know, every branch of the military has some form of special operations. I've worked with all of them. They're all tough guys. They're all great guys. And I think everyone has a mutual respect for each other and for the different training that we all go through. And it's all relatively similar. I would say if there's anything that 
that separates, again, this doesn't make it better or worse, but one thing that the, the SEAL teams does and the basic SEAL training has is water and right. a lot of water work. And, and actually, if you hear Tim Ferriss talking about doing some of this water training that he's done, it's it's a real challenge for some people. And, and no doubt working in the water definitely makes you better at things because if you and I were going to go take down a building, I could train you to do that in a pretty short period of time and you already know how to shoot. So we'd go over some basic tactics and it's not that hard. If I said, okay, before we go to take down this building, we're going to go in a boat and we're mm-hmm. going to swim across the beach in big waves. We're going to get to dry land. We're going to make our guns work again. We're going to make sure our radios are still waterproof. Then we're going to patrol in wet and cold, and then we're going to take down the building. It's a lot harder. Yeah, that, that's yeah. all there is to it. So the water is definitely a, it, it's, it, it provides a level of challenge that is right. very distinct to the SEAL teams. Now, you guys haven't been seeing a lot of water, though, lately, no. right? I mean, it seems like the, the water training has been wasted in our recent engagement. It, it absolutely has been. I, I would say it hasn't been wasted, though, because when you have to perform something in the water all the time, when mm-hmm. you do it on dry land, it's, it's a lot easier. Right. So right. the training wasn't wasted. It was taken advantage of. But to your question, all the different military branches, the Marine Corps, the Army, the Air Force, they all have their special operations unit. They all train hard. They're all great guys. They all have a little bit of a specific mission, but they're all, you know, in my mind, all pretty much the same type of guys. So, so when you mean specific, is it something like Delta Force is more focused on hostage rescue? Is that right. correct? And, and I think the best example is the, the special forces, the Green Berets. Mm-hmm. They're more focused on going and working with counterinsurgency situations with local forces, and they're very advanced in languages. So in the SEAL teams, we're really bad at languages in terms of the number of guys we have that speak other languages. In the, in the Green Berets, they have a lot more people that speak more languages. Mm. So that's, that's a mission that they're going to excel at, whereas we, we're more of a direct action force or a special reconnaissance force. Is there any military skill that is focused to a greater degree in one special ops community more than another? I mean, for instance, like, you know, sniping. Is is there a, a brand of sniper that is acknowledged to be more trained than any other or snipers across each of those disciplines get more or less interchangeable? There. <laughs> this is like asking a Yankees fan who's better, the Yankees or the or the Red Sox, or is this? Well, I, I can tell you that the, the snipers that I've worked with from the SEAL teams are outstanding. And the, the SEAL sniper training course is an unbelievably hard course, mm-hmm. an unbelievably hard course that actually has a pretty significant attrition rate. Um, and it's just, it's just a great course. The SEAL snipers are great. I, everyone, the Army, the Marine Corps, we're always all focusing. We go to each other's schools. Right. So I believe that they all produce good people, really solid people. And yes, I'm being, I'm being um, politically sensitive to my answers to this question. Yeah. And I've just noticed that you've been, in describing working with other ordinary soldiers and even reservists, you've been incredibly respectful and grateful. And I mean, it just, you, you have made no secret of how indispensable their bravery was in the Battle of Ramadi and, and in the other engagements you fought in. And it was really great to hear in those other interviews. Well, that one I would not hold back on at all. The bravery and the professionalism of our American soldiers that I work with and Marines was just phenomenal and humbling to be around them. And again, when you deal with special operations guys, this is what we want to do. This is, this is what we love to do. It's what we want to do. This, you can ask any SEAL. They'll tell you the same thing they want to do since they were a little kid, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. A regular soldier. Now, some of them are professional soldiers, and that's what they always wanted to do. 
but a lot of them are just people that that's a phase of their life that they're in. And so to ask these people going through a phase of their life that they're expecting to go out of in a year or two years to ask them to do these extraordinarily risky things that take an immense amount of courage and bravery and to watch them step up and do this over and over and over again, despite casualties and losses and pressure. It's very humbling and amazing to watch. And that's why I would never hold back when talking about the American servicemen and women that I worked with. Bravery is this maybe unique emotion in that you can't fake it because faking it is actually bravery. If you're terrified and you're merely acting brave and going through the motions and putting yourself in harm's way, that is what bravery is, right? I mean, there are other emotions where, where the counterfeit version of it is, in fact, a counterfeit, but it's the real thing if you're terrified and you're then doing the thing that you, you're terrified to do. Yes, yes, to, to fake bravery is, in fact, to be brave. Yeah. And they used to tell us, False motivation is better than no motivation. In other words, it's better to be, yes, I'm excited to do this, even though you're not. I don't know if I believe that or not, but I kind of do. I kind of do. And I, and I would see people's motivation turn as they falsified their motivation for whatever reason. Right. And then they become, you know what, let's, let's do this. Let's get this done. Well, you, you talk about that in the book and uh, elsewhere, even on your own podcast, you talk about in the face of being told the most deplorable thing about what is about to happen or likely to happen on a patrol, you habitually say good or, or is another good day or what, what's the actual phrase you were using? Well, the, the one that I just talked about on, on a recent podcast was good, Yeah, you know, and, and, and this was one of my subordinate leaders, one of my brothers, actually one of my good friends. And he, he pointed out to me that whenever something was going bad, for instance, he'd say, oh, we got this intel that on this target we're going on to, there's going to be all kinds of IEDs and they're, they're saying there's going to be dozens of enemy fighters. And I'd say, good. You know, yeah. that, that means we have an opportunity to get after it. And yeah, so you definitely get in that mindset where you look at the, the challenges as being a good thing. So um, actually, I was going to ask you this later, but it seems, it seems relevant here. And uh, again, I'm, I'm kind of creeping up on what I consider our main topic here. But what explains the lack of this attitude and the, and the lack of success that we've seen among the troops that we've trained, the Afghans and the Iraqis? You, you fought in the Battle of Ramadi, and Ramadi, as most people know, was then lost to the Islamic State, and now it's just recaptured like yesterday. I think we have like, or the Iraqi army has like 80% of it under control. But there were descriptions of, I think this might have been in Mosul, but you know, 18,000 Iraqi troops melting away in the face of 400 ISIS fighters. And there have been similar things with the Afghan troops, with the Taliban. Now, presumably, this is the same population of people, except for perhaps some percentage of foreign recruits to the side of the ISIS and the Taliban. We're talking about Afghans and Iraqis in both cases. But the troops that we have trained often just show such low morale or such an unwillingness to engage the insurgencies in those countries can you say something about that? Because it's from a civilian side, it, it begins to look a little mysterious what's happening there. But you fought alongside Iraqis and you have, you've put your life in the hands of Iraqis. You've fought, you've, you've, you've risked your life for Iraqis. And I, I know you don't want to cast aspersions upon Iraqis in, or, and Iraqi troops in general, but what explains this? I mean, again, 400 ISIS troops and 18,000 Iraqi soldiers disappearing. Can you explain that to me? Yes, I can. War is a test of will. 
and that's it. And when you have 10,000 or 18,000 or 100,000 troops that do not have the will, and there's two pieces to this will, and, and I've said this before, so I, I don't mean to rehash, mm. but it's, it is the answer. You have to have the will to kill people. That is what war is, and you're going to kill the enemy. That is what your goal is, is to kill them. And when you kill the enemy, because the nature of war is confusing and there's the fog of war and it's an imperfect situation, you are going to kill innocent people. This is another part of war that is horrible and ugly and it is factual. This is what is going to happen. So when you engage in war, you must have the will to kill. You're going to focus as much as you can, obviously, on the enemy, but there will be innocent bystanders. There will be women, there will be children that are going to die because this decision has been made that a war has to be fought. On top of that will to kill, you also have to have the will to die. That means on an individual level, that means your friends, the people you're with, that means that you have to have that will. And so what happens when you have these ISIS fighters that through their mental state that they're in, they have clearly demonstrated that they have the will to kill everyone, innocent, civilian, women, children. They have that will. Because of their belief in martyrdom, they obviously have the will to die. Hmm. Now you take the Iraqi soldiers and, well, they don't have those strong beliefs. And part of it is because they don't have yet Maybe they'll never will. Maybe they've had flashes of it, but they don't have this unified feeling of, of unity around the nation of Iraq where they consider themselves an Iraqi first. Whereas, you know, they consider themselves, you know, their religious sect, their, their tribe, their family. There's a lot of other things in there besides being Iraqi. So when this fight is a will, it's the will of ISIS and what their beliefs are against not so strong of a will of Iraq, this is what happens. You bring up a good point about the, the, just the role that religious sectarianism plays there because you have a, a Sunni-Shia problem in particular in Iraq, uh, which certainly erodes almost all the Sunni will to fight against ISIS because they, they perceive themselves to be at the mercy of the predominantly Shia government. So, and, and by the way, you gave me a nice out on, mm. on this question and said, you know, I don't, I don't want you to sit here and disparage the Iraqi soldiers. And I, I have not even the remotest close level of respect that I have for the American soldiers. I mean, the Iraqi soldiers, we saw them do all kinds of horrible things. They had, we had companies of Iraqi soldiers quit. We had battalions mm. of Iraqi, this is when I was there, battalions of Iraqi soldiers, you know, five or 600 soldiers say, we're not fighting anymore. Yeah. So, yeah. That did not, I have no problem saying that. This right. is, these are facts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, in, in your book, you describe one raid where you literally had to physically push and drag Iraqi soldiers with you through the door to, in, in the middle of a, a hostage rescue. This is the core of what I want to talk about. I, I perceive in my audience, and certainly in Joe Rogan's audience, and in, in our political environment in general, and it is disproportionately a problem among liberals of whom I count myself among, just pervasive doubts about the legitimacy of violence in any context. It's like, you know, is war ever necessary? And I think people 
There are many people who have a default answer to that question, which is no, that, that it's, it's always a, an ethical failure on some level. And it strikes me that, that when you have the most civilized people disproportionately doubting that war is ever necessary, that you have a problem defending civilization at a certain point against its genuine enemies. And um, these doubts are not, they're understandable on some level. So for instance, I heard you talk on your podcast, you expressed great uh, admiration, which I share for um, Dan Carlin's podcast, in particular his series on World War I, Countdown to Armageddon. And um, listeners, if you have not heard Dan Carlin on World War I, your other assignment, which will now take you 20 hours, is to go listen to that. I've uh, repeatedly called that a masterpiece, and it, it really is. But so you, so you have in a war like World War I, which any way you look at it, looks like the most pointless sacrifice of human life and wealth. I mean, it just so you had a generation of young men in Europe just fed into a meat grinder for no apparent purpose. You have them fighting for months on end to capture another hundred yards of farmland, you know, to, to move their trenches forward. And even more horribly, this whole escapade was engaged from the point of just this delusional idealism about war. You just had these, this romantic idea about how glorious it was going to be to go to war. And then they get there and they're just pulverized. And people, I think, draw the wrong lesson from this. And people draw the lesson that basically this is what war always is, right? It's, it's always this pointless. It's always this unnecessary. There's always a kind of moral equivalence to both sides, where it's just sort of the needless sacrifice of human life on both sides. And there are no bad guys, really. So there are two moments in your podcast with, with Rogan that I, I just want to revisit and I think we're going to have to make a few passes on this before I'm satisfied that we have performed an exorcism on, on the ghost of pacifism and, and cynicism. But at one point, you talked about fighting for our freedom over there. And what I detect in Joe's audience is just a, a tsunami of cynicism on that point. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? You're not fighting for our freedom or anyone's freedom over there. You, this was a misbegotten war. It was born of our lust for oil. You know, the Carlisle group pulled the strings and, you know, you went over there and you killed people for no reason. And this was just the, the prosecution of, at best, selfish national interests where we harm innocent people. And, and you just spoke about the unavoidability of collateral damage, and that is a, an excruciating fact of war at this point. And it's only becoming more excruciating. In fact, it's so excruciating. We're so, we're so aware of the costs of war, even though we conceal them from ourselves, that one wonders whether we are up to fighting certain necessary wars given those costs. Could we bomb Dresden now? I mean, I, you know, I think you could argue the bombing of Dresden was not necessary to win World War II, but we did things in fighting that necessary war, which now we would, we would find totally indefensible because we have so much more information. So fighting for our freedom is one concept that I want to talk about. And there was another moment in Rogan's podcast where you, where you talked about this uh, shibboleth of uh, liberal anti-war speak, which is that you can't bomb an idea. Right, and you said, "Well, no, actually, you you can bomb an idea." So let's talk about that for a moment. I think this notion of of, of you and our military fighting for freedom in Iraq can be defended, even if you think the war in Iraq was 
on balance, absolutely unwise, right? That, that it was the wrong war to fight. And I think, I think a case can be made that it was the wrong war to fight. I, I would like to know what you think about that. But I think that even if you were going to bracket the conversation by saying, listen, we should never have gone into Iraq, given the outcome or given the misinformation or lies about WMD, even in that context, you can argue that you were fighting for freedom and that on the ground in Iraq, you were trying to make life better for Iraqis who didn't want to live in this internecine hell realm of uh, civil war. So I just want to get your take on both these concepts of, of fighting for freedom, perhaps even in a, in a war that in hindsight doesn't look ideal, and this notion of you just can't bomb an idea. You know, war is not the answer to ISIS or fascism or anything else that ails us. As I talked about on, on Joe Rogan, being on the ground in Iraq with Iraqi people, they wanted us to be there. They wanted us to help them and to provide them with security. And they want to live in peace and stability. And there is no doubt in my mind about that. And that is what we were doing there on the ground, fighting to help these people. And in the beginning, it was obviously to get rid of Saddam Hussein and that regime. But by the time 2006 rolled around, now there was an insurgency and it was ISIS. And they wanted to take control of Ramadi and they actually had control of Ramadi. But they were enslaving the people, brutalizing them, raping them, murdering them, torturing them. That is what was happening. Mm. And we went in and stopped that from happening and gave them back their freedom. We didn't impose any government on them. We didn't take any oil from them. We gave them the opportunity for peace and stability in, their, in that city and, and in Iraq. So that is what we did. Yeah. I mean, one thing I, I would point out here is that even if you think, that we shouldn't have gone into Iraq. I'm on record here as, as being neither for nor against the war. I've always said that I didn't know what I thought about the war in Iraq, except for the fact that it looked like a dangerous distraction from the war in Afghanistan that we looked like we could very well botch. And that in retrospect, it looks like a disaster given the rise of ISIS and given the, the, the way we left. But even if you're going to say that, if you're going to say, with the benefit of hindsight, we should not have gone into Iraq, you are obliged to admit ethically how depressing a claim that is. Because what you're claiming is, we had this hostage situation where Saddam Hussein is keeping a nation of 30 million people hostage to just a horrific totalitarian government. And what you're saying is that Iraqi society was so fractured along religious lines that it required a dictator of this barbarity to keep the lid on a, the sectarian civil war that then exploded when we took the lid off and left. And that's a very depressing claim about the, the state of religious sectarianism, and it, it certainly doesn't make the, the influence of religious certainty on the ground there look good. One and, thing to interject on that is yeah. when you talk about the people of Iraq, and how this sectarian violence was waiting to explode. And, and you see that on TV sometimes. It's the equivalent of seeing a riot mm. in America and thinking, oh, that's what America is. Because we'd go do operations in Baghdad 
and and there's normal life happening. There's not everyone is right. bent on this this you know religious violence. They're not. They're normal. They're they're I shouldn't say normal, but there's people that their focus in their life is not their religion. Their focus in life is selling more cars or making more bottles or doing whatever it is they're doing, raising their kids and getting to school. And that's what their focus is. That's what a majority of Iraq is. And it's very easy to lose sight of that when what we see on the news is sectarian violence, is one side of Shia and one side of Sunni and how they're clashing. That is what that is not what the normal average Sunni person is doing. The right. average Sunni person in Ramadi is cleaning their store and putting new product up on the shelves and fixing one of the cars that they're working on. That is what is happening in Iraq. And we so often lose sight of that, that Iraq is not the very small percentage of people that are fully engaged in this sort of political or religious strife. The vast majority of people are people like in America, where if you go down Main Street USA, what are they doing? They're living their life. They're trying to pursue happiness. That's that's what that's what Iraq is. And unfortunately, what we see and it gives us the impression that that's what all of Iraq is. What we see is a bunch of people bent on violence. And that is not what Iraq is. I'm glad you said that, because that even makes this this admission even more excruciating. And it's worth pointing out. So you have people, totally normal people who really do just want to live free and self-actualized lives. They're not looking to stone people to death for adultery, and they're not looking to wage jihad against apostates within their own society or export their jihad to the rest of the world. And so you're talking about people just like you and me, who by dint of just sheer bad luck, they've been born into a society where their intellectual interests and their desire for freedom are just smashed at every turn by one the dictator who's keeping a lid on sectarian violence, and two, the sectarian violence that is ready to rise up and destroy everything. So then you're saying that we, whether we as America or we as the rest of the civilized world, can't go in there and offer any help to these people, and that, it, that in retrospect, it looks like the wrong thing to have attempted it. So that is, I, I, if you're going to be critical of the war in Iraq, you have to just own the fact that, yes, you're saying that these are hostage crises for which we don't have a, a remedy. And some people are unlucky. You're unlucky to be a girl born in Afghanistan. But I, as a peacenik, am in principle against anyone trying to come in and rescue you because of the cost, because of collateral damage. And I think it is, I mean, you know, collateral damage is such an ugly fact on every level. It's just, it's, it's, it's ugly that it's impossible to wage war in such a way so as to not kill innocent people. And it's totally understandable that it produces more enemies for us on some level. You know, I don't know what the rates of that conversion are, but it wouldn't be a surprise if, you know, you are an ordinary Iraqi or an ordinary Pakistani, and you just had half your family blown up by a, in a drone strike, that that would make you, in some basic sense, irretrievably at odds with uh, the people who did that to you, whether or not you had any sympathy for jihadism. So talk a little bit more about collateral damage and, I mean, how you think about it in terms of the legitimacy of trying to do good with force in the world, given that it, it's, you really can't avoid collateral damage. You can't completely avoid collateral damage, but I'll tell you what, America goes through 
extreme lengths to absolutely minimize collateral damage. The, the amount of risk that gets taken by American forces to avoid collateral damage is immense. And they avoid it on a regular basis. I mean, we don't carpet bomb anymore. We don't do Dresden anymore. We don't do that. To get bombs dropped in the city of Ramadi was an extremely difficult task to get done because of the, the threat of collateral damage, to, despite being fired on a from a building you know where this these enemy are and they're they're inflicting damage and killing people but yet there's unknown areas around it so therefore we're not going to drop a bomb on it we do that all the time we are very very judicious in the way we execute operations now that being said because war is imperfect there are situations where innocent people die yes that that does happen and it's awful and it's horrible and, you know, this idea that now we've created even more terrorists, I think is, um, I, I don't think that's, I think that's a, it's, it's, it's a case that could be made, hmm. but it's not the 100% and you don't, for every innocent person that dies, that you go and you, you know, we, we actually approach those families and we mm. go and explain to them what happened and we give them money and we try and help them rebuild whatever went wrong. That is what America does when we make these mistakes. So, so I think we just kill these people and they're, and, and, and that's it. No, we go in and try and repair the damage as much as we can. Of course, we can't bring back loved ones, mm. but we try to make this up and explain the situation. And so not, there's not a 100% conversion rate yeah. of you killed my brother by accident, while we were being, you know, terrorized by ISIS hmm. and, and in the crossfire, my brother got killed and, and I think it came from America. And now, therefore, I'm going to wage jihad against America. That, that's not a 100% conversion rate. In fact, I would tell you that it's probably a, a much lower conversion rate than you would think. These people are at war. They've been at war. They understand what war is. They know that war is imperfect. But... ISIS doesn't even come back and make those apologies. They don't come back and say, we're sorry. They don't come back and say, let us rebuild your house. Let us give you some financial support for the son that you lost who is providing this income to your family. That's fine. Let us take care of you. ISIS doesn't do that. ISIS causes collateral damage all over the place. And so I think it's a little bit of a, of a stretch to think that there's this 100% conversion yeah. rate. And, and I think that the conversion rate is actually small enough that it makes it it's, it's hard to say it's worth it, but we take calculated risks with collateral damage and we have to. Otherwise, we can't do anything. You, mm -hmm. you, cannot, you cannot execute a war with zero risk of collateral damage. It cannot happen. I would love for it to happen, but it cannot happen. So therefore, you have to mitigate the risk as much as possible and go forward. That's the way it works. Yeah. And it just seems to me that we, when you're talking about situations of moral emergency, of this sort. So you have ISIS raping women by the tens of thousands and crucifying children and burying people alive. And this goes to the issue of, of moral equivalence or the lack thereof. I mean, pe people imagine that we are no better than our enemies in this case, even in this case. I mean, and in some sense, people, you know, I confront people who think we're worse than our enemies because we made them, right? We created ISIS because we went into Iraq. Uh, we used to fund al-Qaeda against the Soviets, right? So that somehow this causes them to lose sight of the very different human projects we have advertised here. I mean, and again, this comes down to human intentions. Like, well, what kind of world do you want to build? Is, if I gave you a magic wand and you could just create the world as you saw fit, I have no doubt 
that you would create just abundance everywhere for everybody, right? So there'd be, you know, there'd be a Starbucks on every corner and there'd be a jujitsu school on every corner and people would just be able to live out their dreams. And I would do that. And the people who got us into these various wars, uh, many of whom have been demonized to an extraordinary degree and many of whom who I, I share you know, very few political principles with, you know, someone like Dick Cheney, right? I think if you gave him a magic wand, he would not create a hell realm for people in the Middle East. He would make the Middle East more or less like Nebraska or Florida. And you ask yourself, what would Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi do with a magic wand? He is telling us what he would do with every fucking video, yes. right? They're making no secret of the vision of life that they are aspiring to. And again, it's important to point this out, that there is no moral equivalence here. The kinds of just rapacious evil you see in an ISIS video is not an accident. It's not an aberration of their program. It's not their version of the Me Lai massacre. It's not the thing that they have to go back and apologize to their society for and say, I don't know how we did this, but we were pushed into extremists and there's a lot of soul searching necessary. No, no. Every journalist put in an orange jumpsuit and murdered is a absolutely fine point on a vision of life that they are not keeping secret. In fact, this is part of their recruitment material. This is PR for them. This is what they think and, in fact, know will successfully bring like-minded people to their shores to fight alongside them. And again, this is a, a minority of the Muslim community worldwide. This is not synonymous with Islam, but this is a global jihadist insurgency that we're confronting in many places. So I just I, I guess I want to just linger for for a moment on again this is a quote from your interview with Joe this notion of you can't bomb an idea so like if you you can't bomb this idea out of them by definition force is not the appropriate response to ISIS because ISIS is an idea what do you have to say to that good luck set up a series of debates with ISIS and try and use our logic to defeat them is that the other proposal? What is the, what is the alternative? There's an assumption that ISIS is the, the hardest example to absorb by this line of thinking. But generally speaking, people think that our own selfish behavior on the world stage, our own unapologetic theft of or just commandeering of resources, has created people with, quote, legitimate grievances all over the world, especially in the Muslim world now. And ISIS is on some level an expression of those legitimate grievances. And if we were better actors, if we were more apologetic, if we shared more wealth more of the time, if we just got out of Muslim lands entirely, right, if we were not protecting the Saudis, we were not over there in any sense, if we just kept our culture to ourselves, then we would discover that everyone wants the same thing out of life on some level and that, the, that this violence would no, would no longer be directed at us. We have created this because we are in some sense, I mean, literally people will say, you know, the, the U.S. is the greatest terrorist organization in world history. Again, this is like, this is the, the center of Joe's demographic. I mean, this is, this is the kind of thing I get thrown at me whenever I talk to him on his podcast. This is what Noam Chomsky has done to the human mind at the global scale. So the thing I wanted to bring you back to is this notion that you can't bomb an idea. As you pointed out with Joe, Nazism was an idea. Slavery was an idea in the United States held to tenaciously. That the military nationalism of Japan was an idea. After those wars, which were, as you point out, bombing on a scale that now we can't even contemplate, right? 
uh, and probably shouldn't contemplate. Germany and Japan are our friends, right? I mean, the idea of Nazism was successfully bombed out of Germany. Yes. And let's not forget that both Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany would never have stopped Mm. their drive to take over the entire world. They didn't have a border that they were going to. They were going for world domination. So, yeah, we had to stop them. And there was only one way that they were going to be stopped, and that is through the use of force and violence. The other thing to point out there is that you could see our intentions, our fundamentally benign intentions for the world and even for our enemies in the aftermath of those wars, because what did we do to Germany and Japan? Did we just go in and start raping people and steal their land? And we and rebuilt them, them into financial superpowers. We wanted peaceful collaborators economically and culturally, and there's no question that's what we want in the Middle East too. So let's just zero on the notion of pacifism here, because I find it very frustrating to encounter pacifism in these kinds of conversations, because many people seem to think that it's a morally impregnable position. It may not be practical, but if you're a pacifist, if you say, listen, I'm just against the use of force, I'm against violence, you know, I would never want to kill someone and I would never want to delegate the killing of anyone to anyone. So I'm just not going to get my hands dirty. People look at that position and they think, well, that is, again, it's probably good that we have people like Jocko and not everyone's like Gandhi, but I can't say anything bad about the pacifist. It's essentially, you know, vegetarianism across the board. But let's drill down on what on the ethical implications of pacifism, because from my point of view, pacifism is simply a willingness to let others die at the pleasure of the world's thugs. And it's worth remembering what Gandhi's remedy was for the Holocaust. Gandhi suggested that the Jews should just have gone willingly into the gas chambers so as to arouse the conscience of the world to the enormity of Hitler's crimes. But then you have to ask, what is the world supposed to do once its conscience has been aroused if the world is filled with Gandhian pacifists? Gandhian pacifism only works in the presence of an enemy that has enough of a conscience, like the British Empire at that point, that they will just say, you know, this is too much trouble and we're starting to feel bad about ourselves, so we're going to leave India to you pacifists. That's not what the Nazis were up to, and that's not what ISIS is up to. Affirmative. <laughs> you, you're right. There's, it seems very clear to me. I don't even have any questions to what you've just said. It's, it's been a while clear. since you worried about whether or not you should be a pacifist. It, it, I mean, are there people that have legitimate arguments with you about this? Oh, yeah. For instance, I, I've written some on the ethics of torture and focused it down to the cases where you have, I mean, everything's on a continuum and, you know, torture's on a continuum. And I, I think torture should be illegal, but I think there are cases where clearly making someone deliberately uncomfortable is the ethical thing to do. And you would have to be a, a moral monster not to do it in those cases. If you're, if you're going to say, no, no, I'm not going to get my hands dirty, even if I know I'm in the presence of a serial killer who's got my daughter in a box somewhere and he's not telling me where. And analogous cases like that have actually happened, right? There's one case in, in, the, in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which I keep going back to. It's a case in New Zealand where there was a carjacking. And so a guy steals a, a woman's car at a gas station and it's, you know, it's 100 degrees out, and he disappears, and he then gets caught without the car, and 
they know that there's a baby in a car seat in the back of the car on this sweltering day who's you know quickly being asphyxiated in the back of the car and this person isn't telling the cops where he left the car he's he's claiming innocence now it just so happens he's like a 300 pound Samoan guy with a blonde afro he's like the most recognizable person in the world and they have security camera video of him taking the car right so they know they have the right guy and he's not cooperating so the, and then the cops smack him around and he quickly tells them where the car is and the kid's saved, right? That's such a pristine case where the ethics are clear. And, you know, I will happily admit that the moment you start smacking someone around, you are beginning to torture them. But I have been in dialogue with people and in a situation like this on a podcast where the person will say, no, 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 I would not be able to lay a hand on that guy. And I would hope nobody would, right? Or, or if they did, I wouldn't want to know about it. And I have, you know, then then you make even clearer cases. And I've I've had people tell me that you know you could put a thousand girls being asphyxiated in a warehouse somewhere by an evil genius, and I would not sanction the torture of this person, uh, or the waterboarding of this person, or the the prolonged sleep deprivation of this person. And again, my argument with respect to torture is not that it should be legal. I just think that there are clearly cases where you would have to be a monster not to break the law when push comes to shove. And that if you did break the law in those cases, no one's going to prosecute you because you believed yourself to be in a pristine ticking bomb case, or you know, say so, you know, you've got, you've got the person who you know had nukes, and because you've got his laptop too, and you know, he and he even claims that there's a bomb ticking in Times Square, or whatever. People are acting like that there's nothing like these cases that would ever happen. But worse, I meet people who say that even in the presence of such a clear case, they think that the the morally enlightened position is never to make another person deliberately uncomfortable, no matter how diabolical even he thinks he is. So yes, that's how steep the climb is on the the mountain of masochism. That's very strange to me. You know, I guess in the SEAL community, you get used to people having at least somewhat of the same similar viewpoint, Hmm. maybe on different ends of within some kind of a spectrum. But, you know, you take a little girl and put her in danger and give me some person that knows where she is and we can save her from his knowledge, that guy would definitely give information and, you know, smacking him around would just be getting warmed up, in my opinion. It's so taboo to even broach this topic, right? I mean, so like, for instance, what you just said, right? Like if you're a politician running for president, the only admissible position is put up a wall of sanctimony here, which is like, we don't torture. You know, this it's against our values, right? That may be a fine holding pattern for, you know, if we're going to talk about laws, but it doesn't actually give you any insight into the, the ethical imperatives when you're talking about dealing with the use of force and the fact that, that something very much like good and evil is appearing in our world. That whether you think the words good and evil are too simplistic, you know, the case can be made, you know, biologically they're too simplistic, but for all intents and purposes, there are some evil people in the world, and worse, from my point of view, there are ideas that make even psychologically normal, even good people evil in this world. So I, I'm under no illusions that all members of ISIS are psychopaths. I think there are, are psychologically normal members of ISIS who are just convinced that their worldview is correct. They're convinced that the prophecies they expect to be true are true, and they, they're convinced that the creator of the universe has dictated a single book, and, and the jihad until you know, all of humanity 
bows the knee to that book is incumbent upon every Muslim male. I just read in, on um, the CNN website last night that a member of ISIS reportedly decapitated his own mother as an apostate. I suppose the guy could have been a psychopath, but he also could have been someone who was just absolutely convinced of the reality of paradise and the necessity of doing God's will and that God's will is this way. So I'm actually more worried about bad ideas than I am about bad people. And maybe you're not in a good position to be in touch with it, but I think there's a, there's a level of cynicism and moral fatigue in our society around, you know, largely in response to our recent wars, that I, I worry that perhaps we fought some not entirely necessary wars or fought them in such a way that now we're not in a position to actually recognize necessary wars. Do we have a kind of a new Vietnam syndrome now that we're uh, dealing with? I mean, how do you view our current attitude politically toward the use of force? I'll give you one more example. The negotiation of, of the treaty with Iran, it seems pretty clear that it was obvious to everyone, especially the, the Iranians, that the use of force was not on the table. I mean, we, we said everything's on the table, but it was more or less transparent to them that there is no political will at all in American society to fight a war with Iran, more or less under any circumstances. So we can say everything's on the table, but, and I'm not saying we sh I think we should fight a war with Iran. I'm just saying that we're so fatigued now and so self-doubting on this front that it seems like we can't even make a credible threat of the use of force because everyone knows we are going to avoid war at all costs at this point. I'd say that's probably a pretty accurate statement, and I think that Iran knows that and knew that in that negotiation situation, and had they had a different viewpoint, they were would probably have had a different attitude. Hmm. There, there's no doubt that the threat of violence is a real thing that needs to be present in some of these negotiations in a situation like that, when you're dealing with a, a nation state that obviously has some pretty aggressive views about their position in the world. So I think there's no doubt about it. I think if, you know, and I, this is something I talked about on Rogan. I mean, you go far enough into the American bubble where the closest thing you get to understanding what violence is, is hearing Sam Harris talk about it on a podcast through your iPhone. I mean, that, that is legitimately the closest thing to violence that many people have is, you know, is listening to it, listening to a guy talk about it on an iTunes podcast. So, so when you, when you're that disconnected from it, it can be very easy to say, look, why would we have any violence at all? You know, we just need to stop that. And I think that's again, why people that have served in the military that have gone overseas and that have actually with our own eyes seen and looked into the face of evil and understand it. That's why we look at the world and say, yes, you do need to use violence against evil in many cases. And I have seen evil people. I have seen them. And it's, it's, it's almost... I remember the first time I experienced it. It was my first deployment to Iraq, and we, we went and captured these bad guys, and, and it was actually a mixture of people. So there's some bad guys and some not bad guys, but it was, a, it was in a hotel situation. So we just grabbed all the military-age males, and then we went and sorted them out and figured out who's who and let the innocent people go. But there was 
a guy and we knew his name, but we didn't know what he looked like. But as soon as I saw this one guy who was, you know, a murderer of innocence and he was just an evil person. But as soon as I saw this guy, I didn't know who he was, but I looked at this guy and I said, that is an evil human being right there. I've never even seen a person like this. I've never seen a person. I've never seen that look in someone's eyes. Mm. And sure enough, as our interpreters came in, our Iraqi counterparts came in and started talking to him, they figured out who this guy was and he was a foreign fighter and he was an evil person. And you could see that. You could feel it. You could feel it. And then in Ramadi, same thing. Now we were dealing with, we were seeing bodies in the street, people skinned alive, people's heads the, f- the father of a family's head being left on the doorstep of the home. That's evil. Mm. And that is a real thing. It is a real thing. Evil is a real thing. And it cannot be stopped through debate. It cannot be stopped through charity. It cannot be stopped through hugs. These truly evil people have to be stopped with violence. It becomes especially clear to me there's an ethical asymmetry between the two sides in this war on the topic of human shields. So, for instance, there are people in this world who use human shields, and there are people in this world who are deterred by the use of human shields. And I think that is the greatest ethical disparity I have ever come across. And what's amazing, I mean, the level of cynicism on the side of those using the human shields is, is worth contemplating because here you have people who know they're fighting an enemy that will be deterred by the use of human shields, right? So I'm going to fight behind kids or I'm going to put my missiles next to a hospital knowing that my enemy will be deterred to whatever degree by my doing that. The use of human shields in a, in a variety of conflicts has been widely reported, but is that something that you as a soldier ever witnessed firsthand? I had my snipers kill guys that were holding kids and carrying mm. machine guns and holding kids to protect themselves. No right. doubt about it. So no you, doubt about it. using kids and as body armor. Using kids as body armor. And by the way, kids, local kids from Ramadi that have a parent and a mom screaming, you know, stop, help, whatever. And here's this insurgent, you know, grabs a kid, picks him up to try and cro- get across the street with a machine gun because he figures he can protect himself. Of course, we have good snipers, like I mentioned earlier, mm. to kill these guys. But yeah, they, they do that. There's no doubt about it. And that is, that is, again, another case of evil, just pure evil. Yeah, yeah. And, and then it's also good to think about it from the other side. So just imagine how fatuous it would be to attempt to use human shields against an enemy like ISIS. Right, so like against an enemy that doesn't care about how much collateral damage it causes. If you want to map the distance between our ethical norms and just the psychological reality of what it's like to be us, you have to wonder: Well, how would we behave if ISIS was strong enough to invade California? Like, what would we start to do? Right. So ISIS shows up in California, flying their black flag, and we are resisting. Are we going to start using human shields? Am I going to grab my neighbor's daughter and start shooting over her shoulder at ISIS when one, that's just truly morally unthinkable from my point of view, but two, it is also unthinkable that ISIS would be deterred. Yeah, they don't care. It just crystallizes the, the problem. 
One story you have in your book that I, I want to ask you about, because again, I, th I think we'll puncture some illusions about just what it was like to be you over there. And again, this is this is true, whatever one thinks about the legitimacy of the, the whole war in Iraq. You, you tell a story of an actual hostage rescue uh, where your SEAL team, along with Iraqi fighters working in concert with you, go to rescue a, a single Iraqi teenage hostage. Mm -hmm. And under some significant threat that members of your team are going to suffer casualties, if not be killed in the process, and you're told as you're more or less walking out the door, you receive more intelligence that there's very likely an IED in the front yard of this building, and there's a um, bunkered machine gun position in the building. And so there's, there's every reason to expect that your lives are on the line going to get an Iraqi, a single Iraqi hostage. I think most people would be very surprised to learn the sheer fact of such an operation, that you would be going, that you'd be putting your lives on the line to get an Iraqi hostage. I don't think they'd be surprised to know that you'd do it for, you know, blonde-haired Jessica Lynch, and so she can wind up on Fox News, and we can um, congratulate ourselves that our SEALs are so good. But the idea that you would do it for a single Iraqi hostage will surprise people. It's unfortunate that it surprises people kind of shows you what people's mentality is if that's what they're if they're surprised by the fact that the American troops are over there and there's a kid that has been kidnapped taken from the city of Fallujah brought to the city of, of Ramadi held by these known terrorist insurgents and that when this mom because what happened was the mom went to the gate of the American compound in Fallujah and said hey my son has been kidnapped they left me this note I don't know what to do they gave me this phone number help me can you help me and of course, that, that's what we do. <laughs> you know, that's what, that's what we do. We help people. And in this case, we rescued this kid. And, and also, there's always a threat. There's, if you're going to only go on missions where there's no threat, you're, you're not going on any missions. So you're always weighing what the threat is, and you're mitigating that threat as much as possible. There was also, you know, some strategic value to helping this kid get rescued. Because the army force that we were working with was predominantly Shia. And they were rescuing a Sunni kid. And they, and they mm. knew that. And we mm. knew that. And they put it in the local paper. So there was you know, bigger strategic reasons that also led us to do it. But the main reason we did it was because there was a young Iraqi kid who had been kidnapped by terrorists. And was, they were saying they were going to behead him. And his mom wanted help. Mm -hmm. And we gave it to him. And I don't. I'm disappointed to hear that people would be surprised by that. Yeah, yeah. Have you read the comments? I actually haven't read the comments on your interview, and maybe you were immune to it, but I hesitate to recommend that you do this. But if you read the comments on a, like a, a YouTube video associated with a Rogan podcast, certainly one I'm on, and I'm, I'm not a masochist, so I, I only did this once and I've never gone back, but it is just amazing the, the, the moral intuitions you see on display around here, that basically everything we do is just certainly on the world stage as a matter of foreign policy, is just a sustained, rapacious, wanton theft of the world's resources and opportunity. And we just steamroll over the dreams of innocent people everywhere. And again, I mean, this is, I'm quoting critics of mine that the U.S. is the worst terrorist organization in human history. Rogan's got guests, and not this is not just in the comments. He has he has guests on his show who who uh, will say these things. I I would almost question whether they could actually truly believe that. I mean, are they? I mean, if you have any kind of 
recognition or awareness of the world mm. <laughs> in any way. I mean, how could you come to that conclusion? It's, it's an illogical conclusion. They can't be aware of the entire world and what the world is actually like and come to that conclusion. That, that's well, not, well, that's does, not possible. No, their conclusion is, is rather often based on body count, for instance. So for, you know, there, it's been widely reported that some hundreds of thousands of people and the, some of the, some of these reports are up to you know two million people is the uh, highest report I've seen have died as a result of our adventures in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I don't know how many people you think ha- have died. The, the, how, the, the number of people who have died is not the same as the number of people we killed. But do you know how many people are thought to have died as a result of our going into Iraq? Let's just take Iraq uh, separate from Afghanistan. Are going into Iraq? and the resultant civil war. Do I know how many people were killed in Iraq? I mean, the calculation is there's an ambient level of death in Saddam Hussein's Iraq, Mm -hmm. and then we go in there for um, a period of years, and the death rate goes up. And you can, so these people obviously blame us entirely for the death Mm -hmm. rate going up. So we're blamed for all the sectarian violence. The death rate goes up to the tune of how many more dead than would be expected if we hadn't gone in. That's that's the that's the body count, and that that has been estimated at a hundred thousand. It's been estimated at two hundred thousand. It's been estimated at two million, and I think those higher numbers are rather obviously politicized and untrustworthy. But I don't know I don't know what number. I mean, again, all this data is so politicized that it's hard to know what to trust. But there's some number there where a war happened that wouldn't have otherwise happened, right? So, so yeah, th- those those numbers are the two million numbers just. Not even close. Um, you know, in Ramadi, which was, I fought in Ramadi, which was by far the most violent and crazy fighting that was happening in Iraq. And, you know, in the months that we were there, I was there for six months, there was probably a total of maybe two or 3,000 people killed. Mm including armed insurgents. Right. So, and this is in the epicenter of the insurgency. So to somehow extrapolate that out to, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people is inaccurate. And whatever the number is, I would say just that you have to distinguish between people we killed and the effort we took not to create collateral damage and the boiling sectarian civil war that we failed to control or could not have controlled. But you could argue we should have anticipated it. We should have done more to control it, perhaps. But it's, it's, you can't hold us responsible for you know, Shia militias abducting their Sunni neighbors and drilling holes in their heads. I mean, this is, that's not something we did, or, nor would we have sanctioned it. Um, the issue of body count as a metric of evil is often the problem here, or, or just as a metric of the size of, of a problem. So for instance, a friend of mine, I'll give you two examples here. So, so Bill Maher, who's, who's also a friend, he, he once gave an analogy to Hurricane Katrina. So, so Hurricane Katrina rolls through, kills a thousand people, creates you know, billions of dollars in damage, and we just clean up and rebuild and move on. But if terrorists had done that, terrorists had gone in and killed a thousand people in a day, and cause billions in damage, we would, quote, overreact. 
we would then go find another another war and spend another trillion dollars to go after the people who did this. And the argument there is that this overreaction is the problem, that we should, we should respond the way we would to, to Hurricane Katrina. And a friend, uh, Lawrence Krauss, a physicist, just wrote, a, just wrote an article in The New Yorker for which he's gotten a lot of flack, um, some of which is certainly unfair, more or less making the same argument, that when you look at the problem of terrorism from the point of view of body count, the point of view of, of the numbers of people killed, the numbers of Americans killed, it's a rounding error on all kinds of other problems we have that we just accept as just the cost of doing business. So if you just look at gun violence, we've got 30,000 people dying every year from guns. Two-thirds of them are, are suicides, but fully 10, 12,000 are murders reliably every year. And uh, this is a success story. Murder has come down by 50% in the last 20 years. And we've only had, you know, some few, th- if you, even if you count September 11th, we've had some few thousand people killed directly by terrorism. And he's pointed out that in Paris, during the recent attacks, if you extrapolate just how much more dangerous that those attacks made life in Paris, it more or less made, on, a, on an annual basis, it made Paris like New York. And New York is, is considered one of the safest cities in the world now. But I would argue that body count really is the wrong metric here for a few reasons. Uh, one is, I think the overreaction that we have to terrorism is, um, in some basic sense, unavoidable and needs to be priced in to the problem. For instance, if you're going to think about a new act of terrorism of the scale of September 11th, it's wrong to think about the cost of that as merely 3,000 lives that we should shrug off. I mean, and if we had another September 11th now, we have to think of the real cost of that, which is a globally destabilizing act of terror. I mean, so just economically, the cost of it is immense. And when you think of a, an act of terror of the sort that our enemies are aspiring to cause, an order of magnitude larger than September 11th, or something that included a dirty bomb that rendered you know, part of Manhattan uninhabitable for decades, you're talking about just a history-distorting event that can't be captured by body count because, you know, 20,000 people dead, that's not that many people. We, we shrug that off every year just with highway fatalities. So all bodies are not equivalent. And yet the people who are trying to talk about terrorism as really being an, a very low order problem are just looking at the body count. 100,000 people die every year because they get infected by, you know, doctors and nurses not washing their hands properly. Much bigger problem than global jihadism. So, I mean, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that topic, but that's, that's where people are get, how people are arriving at this kind of position, which is this is not even something we need to worry about because we're talking about very few people dead from terrorism. And let's keep it that way. Because the thing is with, the, with a terrorist attack and with terrorism and with global jihadism is this is, a, this is not a static entity that is, happens one time and doesn't happen again. It is a moving and growing cancer and the more we allow it to grow and move the broader the attacks will come and the more people will die so a hurricane is an event that is a one-time event that is unrelated to the next hurricane (laughs) you know other than that they're both hurricanes Hmm. but terrorist attacks are something that are going to grow if you don't do something to stop it so it's kind of a silly argument in my opinion this is a if we let this phenomenon continue to grow it will get worse so we need to stop it while we can 
Yeah, and and in the case of ISIS, what do you think stopping it would look like? I don't know if you're you've read some of this material, but there was a very, very famous now article in the Atlantic magazine written by Graham Wood, who I interviewed on my blog after he published his article, and um, he really got into the details of the Islamic prophecy that ISIS is committed to. And this is not, even most jihadists are not necessarily thinking in terms of this particular prophecy, but ISIS is infatuated with this idea that there will be a final battle in uh, Dabiq in in Syria, and that, you know, the the forces of the Antichrist, uh, that is us, will show up and there will be a, a battle that will, will more or less decimate most of the jihadists. There'll just be a final remnant of jihadists who will be there to preside over the um, return of Jesus when he preaches Islam and, you know, just the, the final sorting out of uh, all the, the moral accounts of the universe. But they are expecting to fight us there and to largely lose, right? I mean, in terms of body count. And I just wonder why everyone seems to think that it would be a terrible idea to conform to this prophecy and just say, listen, actually, we are going to come to Dabak and we're going to fight you there. And, you know, if you don't stop us, we're just going to spread a lot of gay porn all over the place. And uh, because, in fact, we are the Antichrist, what would solving the problem of ISIS look like from your point of view? What do you, what do you think we should do? Destroy them. But the fear clearly is that having... U.S. or international, just non-Muslim troops lead the way in any significant way. I mean, analogous to what we, we've done previously in Iraq and Afghanistan, is so inflammatory culturally and religiously that it does that it does the messaging of ISIS for it. Now we've got more infidels on the ground in Muslim lands. You don't think it has to be a an Arab Sunni force leading the way? That, that I think that's that's an ideal way. And if you look at what just took place in Ramadi, and I think that's the model that they're going to use in Mosul, and I think that's the model they're going to carry across the ISIS-controlled areas, that was Iraqi soldiers that mm. took back Ramadi. And they used American air support, of course, and they used American training, but those were Iraqi soldiers on the ground. And yes, it is much more positive to have them go in and do it. And they w- were with us in Ramadi when we were when we took Ramadi the first time, we played a much larger role as Americans than what happened this last time. But nonetheless, uh, yeah, you need to help them and, and, and encourage those activities to happen in, in order to crush ISIS and destroy them. I mean, I mean, and of course, it's, it's much better if the Iraqis and the Syrians and the Jordanians and whoever else is gonna is gonna help out, go in and, and take care of the problem. Of course, that's that's outstanding. That's that means American kids don't get killed. Do you think the tide is turning on that particular point? I mean, do you think that's going to happen? If I if I, you had to predict, you know, ten years from now, are we going to be talking about ISIS having grown, having not been defeated, or do you think there will be an, an engagement? I, I, I think I think the tide is is turning right now. I think there's we're in a slow, steady uh, beginning to take them down. It'll take many years. Um, but it's okay. It's going to be like a siege warfare, a modern day siege warfare, which I was pretty impressed with in Ramadi. They surrounded the city. They mm. cut off supplies. And, and this is what's, what's really nice about the situation is they're in Iraq. So it, it's not an, a quote unquote occupying force. These are Iraqi people that are going in into their city, surrounding it, doing siege warfare. They're going to do something similar up in Missoula. I think that's the new, and they'll just continue to do that until they've cleaned them out. And is it, is it mostly Shia forces doing it, or have they managed to recruit mostly Sunni forces, or is, is it just kind of a random uh, mix? Of- actually, interestingly, and I 
this is my assessment. So please don't take literally as fact what I'm about to say. I'm giving you an assessment from what I've seen on the news hmm. and some of what I've heard is that the the groups that they put in the lead were mixed groups and which is which is great. So for instance, there's a group of special specially trained Iraqi soldiers. They're like a counter-terrorist force but they're of there's Kurds, there's Sunnis, there's Shia. They're 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 a mixed group, and they ha- they played a very significant role. And obviously, that was the intent was to get get a a mixed group to go in there, and that's an a, an ideal way to do it. I think mm. they did an excellent job. Yeah, the background concern here is something that I've now called the narrative narrative. There's this this statement one often hears is that you don't want to confirm the narrative of ISIS, which is you don't want there to be any perception that the West is at war with Islam. So if you do anything that seems to align with that perception or that can be spun as to confirm that perception, then you're doing the work of of ISIS's recruitment for them. From my point of view, that's either a totally paranoid concern that we don't need to have, or it's true. Those are two very different scenarios. We should should figure out which which we think is, is real there. The background concern is if you can, quote, confirm the narrative, then many, many more, perhaps millions or even tens of millions of people who would otherwise have no sympathy for ISIS will suddenly be driven into the arms of the jihadists because you have confirmed the narrative. You said the wrong thing about Islam on television. There were too many infidels on the ground and not enough Sunnis in one of these engagements, whatever it is. And I'm wondering, I just wonder what your perception is of that fear, because that really, I, I do perceive that as being a major reason why we can't politically simply say that ISIS has to be defeated and we are going to do that and here's how we're going to do that. We, we either have to pretend that someone else is going to do it and that we're not involved, we're covertly involved, but um, we're really um, very sheepish about recognizing how awful this group is and how obvious it is that there's no talking to them, and there's only a military solution, and that it would be pure compassion with respect to the people who are being victimized by this group that we, that we offer that solution. I think it's just a reality. America needs to take a principled leadership role in saying, hey, look, we will support these operations. We'll take the lead if necessary. We are, we, we are here 100% to support destroying ISIS, and we will help you guys, and then we help them. And I think that's what we've done. I think, I think that's what happened in Ramadi. I think we'll continue to see that. There's going to be some tough fighting. Don't get me wrong. There's going to be some brutal fighting. Mm. The, the will, once again, is going to be tested of the Iraqi soldiers. It definitely helps having your big brother there. I, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to those soldiers on the ground, those Iraqi soldiers on the ground, to know that their big brother, America, will help them if they need it. And mm-hmm. that is the difference between 18,000 soldiers fleeing in the face of 400 ISIS and 18,000 soldiers lock and loading their weapons and stepping up to the battle line to crush ISIS. That, that's a real thing. So we, we do have to be delicate. I mean, this is, this is, this is politics. This mm-hmm. is interacting with other countries. We have to be delicate. We have to be smart. But we have to provide the support, the motivation, the leadership, the vision, to, to support these, these nations that are in this terrible situation, a hostage situation, as you called it. 
So to what degree are we doing that? How many thousand troops do we actually have there? And what do you think we actually should have there? I think there's something around 3,500 3, American uh-huh. troops on the ground. I think you, you, you provide the troops that it takes to win. And another thing that I say all the time is if you're going to go to war, you go to war to win. Now, again, I think the Iraqis, when they know their big brother is with them, they are going to be much more brave. There's no doubt about it. They're going to be more brave with their big brother there. And that is going to help them immensely. And not to mention air power. We, we have an awesome air power. And mm-hmm. air power in a war like this is a incredible advantage. I mean, it's just an absolutely incredible advantage. Mm. So we are going to support them with air power. We will support them on the ground as needed. We put what troops on the ground it takes. You know, these types of questions, these kind of tactical questions about how many troops and where do you position them, these are things that, you, you know, I think I said this on the Rogan show as well. You take a, a, a two-year Marine officer and you say, all right, buddy, you sit over here with this battle map and plan out how to how to get this done and they're going to get it done this is not the most complicated thing in the world there are complexities understood there are complexities inherent in it but the solution is not complex it's a relatively simple military operations that is what the military does that that is this is what the military does right. we go into places we partner with host nations, we train them how to fight, we supply them with equipment, we provide them with logistics, we provide them with air power, we help train and advise them, bring them out on the battlefield and, and help them win. This is, this is a normal thing for America to do. And when we get done with that, we help stabilize, we, like we did with Japan, like we did with Germany, we, st- we stabilize them, we help them rebuild, get them back on their feet. And that is, that's... But then how, how do you view the political will to solve this rather straightforward problem. I think as long, again, as long as we are judicious in the use of American force and, and the use of American blood, and we're smart, I think that we, I, I shouldn't say I think, I hope that we have the will to do what's right, which is provide the support and provide the leadership, provide the vision, provide the air support, provide the troops on the ground if needed, which, Again, with Big Brother supporting you, you have a lot more confidence. And I think that is going to be immensely helpful. I think it was immensely helpful in Ramadi. And by the way, the, the folks on the ground in, in Iraq right now, from an American leadership perspective, are outstanding. I mean, outstanding individuals. I'm talking about the American commanders on the ground. Uh-huh. I know several of them right. personally. They are the best, the smartest. These people understand the culture, the war. They understand this stuff at a level that nobody in America, no one in American media, no no one, no one understands that that some of these guys that have been on the ground were there in the fights before. These guys are incredibly smart people that are leading this, and I, I have a lot of faith in them. But then how do you view our withdrawal because all of this is ha- happening on the back of our withdrawal from Afghanistan and our withdrawal, our you know much advertised withdrawal from Iraq, and it's, it just seems like we're getting dragged back into Iraq despite our best efforts to stay out of it. And the thirty five hundred troops we have there now are just this. I mean, again, I, I have no information. I just am a consumer of the news here. But the public perception that I have of this is just that 
it is a kind of piecemeal effort. It's not a it's not a principled thirty five hundred troops is exactly what we need to get the job done. It's just we got to put something in there. We're going right. to do the best we can, but listen, at all costs, President Obama has to be able to look the American public in the eye and say, we were getting out of Afghanistan. We already got out of Iraq. There's going to be no more wars. And I think that is the attitude that, or that's the description of what the world is going to be like going forward from an American foreign policy point of view that many, many millions of Americans insist has to be the case. So there's just the, the appetite for a Another 200,000 troops going anywhere is, uh, it seems to me, to be non-existent. I would agree with that. I, I would say, you know, you talk about the withdrawal. I, I think it's hindsight is 2020. And in, in addition to hindsight being 2020, the commanders on the ground when we left Iraq said, don't leave Iraq right now. That was, that was clear. Everybody that was ever in Iraq knew that it was not ready yet. The, the, the security forces were not ready yet to handle the security in their own country. So they needed Big Brother to stick around longer until they were ready. And we didn't. And it took some time when we left. But once we left, it happened. And we all knew it was going to happen. So this time, let's be smarter about when we decide to leave. If we ever leave, if we, you know, if we, maybe we have bases there. Um, maybe we don't, but we make sure that they're, that the Iraqi people can handle security in their own country. And once they can do that, then we can leave if we want to, but let's make sure we get there. That that's, mm. that's just a logical thing to do. Why, why do you think we failed to heed that warning at the time? Is this a, a lesson that's impossible to learn? No, I think it's a very clear lesson. That's very simple to learn. You make sure that the country that you go into to try and stabilize and free the people, once you've rid the the bad guys, now you need to make sure you stay there long enough that the bad guys just don't come back. It's it's a fire. It's a it's little embers in a forest fire. Mm-hmm. You 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 have to completely extinguish them, and then once you extinguish them, you have to put sand on top of them. And then once you put sand on top of them, you've got to make sure that there's new trees planted that are going to be fresh and green and not dry. And then once those are planted and growing, and now you can say, you know what, this is completely stabilized. There won't be any more fires here. Now we can go. We didn't do that. We, we kind of put out the fire and left. And those embers just very quickly reignited. It wasn't that quick, but they, they reignited. The Iraqi security forces were not ready yet to handle the situation. And that's, that was a, uh, a big mistake. Would you describe Afghanistan the same way, or is there any important difference between the two? Similar. It's a similar situation. We have to be very cautious. We have to be very cautious. You can't, you know, you have to make sure that the job is complete. And that just takes time. It doesn't, you know, the the amount of effort that you're putting into the situation goes down dramatically as time goes on. But, But it does take time. And you need to leave your troops in in position to where they can provide support if needed to the locals on the ground. And what you're doing in doing that is you're preventing what's happened in Iraq and what could happen in Afghanistan. And again, there as an American serviceman that served overseas, as someone that lost my friends in combat, Mm. I am not a person that is jumping up and down and saying, let's go to war all the time. And that is not what most military guys and girls have the attitude of. We're the ones, our friends are the ones that go and fight and die in these situations. So we are not the ones raising our hands and pounding on the table saying, yes, let's go to war. Let's go to war. Let's go to war. That's just crazy talk to Mm -hmm. think that. 
That's that's crazy talk. We are the ones that when the when the war drums start to beat, we're the ones that get the chills in our back and and because we know that our friends are going to go and fight and die. Well, but there seems to be a kind of a paradox there, though, which would seem to inspire some of the crazy talk, because you have also said, and you're not alone here, many soldiers have said this, that fighting over there was the highlight of your life, right? I mean, it's some of the, the, the most meaningful time you've spent as a human being. And you've also said that you've always wanted to do that. I mean, you knew from a very early age you wanted to be a commando, as you said. So reconcile that seeming paradox for me. You know, it's like when you talk to somebody that has had cancer. If they've made it through cancer, what's the most meaningful thing? What's the most impactful thing that's happened in your life? Well, I had cancer. I thought I was going to die, and I lived, and I was blessed. That, that's what I'm saying here. Mm, that's a great analogy. In terms of what I always wanted to do, I think the, the, the key part of that is you want to be tested, mm. right? I wanted to, to come up against this test of me as a human is really what it boils down to because it is it is the ultimate test it's a test of everything it's a physical test it's a mental test it's a spiritual test it's a test of everything Mm. it's all there and so i think to want to be tested as a person i i don't think that's abnormal and my final point is having the opportunity to witness the incredible nature of man in these situations where you can have a a man sacrifice their life for their friends to be able to be a part of that and witness that is definitely a moving thing and something that is and will always be the highlight of my life to have been there and seen this sacrifice, this absolute selflessness. Of course, that's a highlight of my life. Of course it is. Who would not be humbled? Who would not stand in awe to see a man do that for another man? Yeah, and that's that's another reason why your cancer analogy is so powerful. Because you know, having known people who have survived cancer and not survived it, it it's a very common experience that everything of value gets distilled down to its essence going through that crucible. It's not like you you want to have cancer, but you certainly want to live with that kind of depth and intensity and and the clarification of your priorities that it brings and. If there was an easier way to get that, then you would you would want it that way. But you you want that quality of life, and, and this is actually this is it's a kind of a taboo thing to say. I mean, so, so someone like Sebastian Younger, who I I'm sure you're familiar with his work. He he's written about this and interviewed people. The highlight of my life component to fighting a war is taboo in polite society to acknowledge and and to talk about. But it's not at all surprising that that's the case. And it's something that, you know, if we want to understand human life and the human mind and violence, it's it's something that we should talk about. I wanted just to talk briefly about violence more generally, not at the level of war making, but now now just bringing everything into the picture, crime and self-defense and martial arts and 
the illusions of uh, that people have about violence, whether they've not thought about it at all or have trained for it, but actually have never experienced it. So I guess I, it's just really a kind of a single question to you. It's like, what is it that people, that you think people don't understand about violence and should? I'm thinking about both about people who, as you say, the, the, the kind of people who just never encounter anything violent in their lives and they hear a discussion like this and it just sounds like we're talking about another planet. You know, I know many people who just would never dream of taking martial arts or of owning a gun, and rightfully so. They're as convinced about the statistical unlikelihood of them ever having to need any of these things that they just it seems like a, just a frank waste of time for them. Like, why would they do this? So, so I'm, I'm thinking of those people, but I'm also thinking of someone like myself, someone who has trained in martial arts, who trains with firearms, who has thought a lot about violence, but who has never experienced any of it, really. I mean, I have, you know, marginal encounters with, you know, kind of fistfight level violence, but nothing of the sort that confirms or disconfirms any expectation I have about what it would be like to actually be in a firefight, for instance, right? So what should people in general and someone like me understand about violence from the point of view of someone who's seen a lot of it? Number one, I think it's important to recognize that violence is a real thing in the world. And if, and if you've gotten to a point in your life, good for you, that it's something that is so distant from your reality that you can't imagine that it could have possibly happened to you, I, I applaud you and your lifestyle and whatever you've done with your existence to get to this point in the world. I, I would still say that even if you've gotten to that point where you think nothing can ever happen to you, then you're wrong and there are always situations that can occur where you can be the victim of violence. So that being said, if there's this remote chance that you could be a victim of violence and you're going to dedicate some portion of your life on that remote chance, then maybe you're right and it's not worth preparing for. And I would agree with that. But the fact of the matter is that preparing for violence, as remote as that chance might be, or as frequent as it might be, if you're a police officer or you know, you're in the military and you, you prepare for that because that's your daily reality, whether you're that person or whether you're the person with the completely tiny remote chance because you're not a person that's a ripe target, you have security, you live in a great area, regardless of which one of those people you are, preparing for violence is a very educational thing. Mm -hmm. And it really teaches you a lot about yourself and about others. And there's discipline involved. And it unlocks parts of you that are very good. You know, it increases your confidence. It obviously increases your physical conditioning. It makes you a better athlete. It makes you more secure. It puts you more in touch with other people because you train with other people. So there's all these benefits to it. And those, all those benefits of training and, and shooting and just becoming uh, some kind of, on some level, some kind of warrior, some kind of person that can fight and defend yourself, hopefully you never have to use it. I, I don't ever want to use it. I, I mean, I, I would rather just, you know, be left alone, of course. I don't want my kids to ever have to use what I've taught them, but they have it if they need it. And, and I think that's, 
the real, I guess not the most simple answer, but that's the reality of my answer. It's an enjoyable thing. It's a productive thing. It's an educational thing. And, and in many cases it can really change your attitude and your appreciation of the world. And, and you're a jujitsu player. I mean, you're a, you shoot guns. There is something obviously, you know, after six months of jujitsu, you're kind of like, okay, if I get in a fight, I can, I can, I can pretty much handle, you know, most situations, but, but you don't stop there because there's more to it than that. It's, it's, it adds more to your life and it makes you into that, you know, like I said, and I hate to use this term because it's so overused, but this warrior mentality, it, it brings that out, which I think is a positive thing. I still imagine that there are levels of illusion that people have to cut through. So, so just tell me what it's like to be a, a trained Navy SEAL who hasn't seen combat yet. So you've, you have all the tools, you've done all the evolutions with all the, the weapons, and you've learned you know, close quarters, battle tactics, but nothing has been for real yet. Are there any drastic surprises going from, I'm fully trained, but in fact, totally inexperienced to experienced? Is there some kind of reliable landscape of you know, have certain illusions canceled or not? Unfortunately, I don't think there's reliable landscape because in talking to my buddies and what we all experienced, the first time I was ever in a firefight, I was completely normal. I was like, okay, this is what's happening. I see the bad guys over there. We got our vehicles here. We need a, We got cover over in that direction. Okay, you know what I mean? It was one of those situations where... I had been trained so much because it was, I think, 13 years in the SEAL teams before I shot at the enemy. Wow. So that's from 1990 until 2003. Right. That's 13 years of training uh, before I finally pulled the trigger at a bad guy. So that's a long time. And that's a lot of training. And I I was really into my training. (laughs) I was really into it, you know. And so, and, and the SEAL teams... You know, we got handed down lessons learned from Vietnam and training methodologies from Vietnam that we took very seriously. And, and they did prepare us for combat and they did get us ready for those situations. So I felt, you know, comfortable. And, and I will say this as well. I was lucky in that, you know, the first firefight I ever got in was at a nice distance. It was relatively low volume of fire. It was one of those situations where it's okay, you know, I got the, I got a taste and right. then escalated. You know, some guys had gotten thrown into heinous, crazy firefights out of the gate. You know, the guys that were in Ramadi with me, the new guys, the, you know, some of these guys, their first patrol they ever went on, they were they were in massive firefights and they got that very quick wake up call of okay, this is this is what's important, this is what's not. And and everybody goes through that, but the training does prepare you very well. And this is something I say about jujitsu as well, from a self-defense perspective, you know, for a girl that's going to get assaulted by a guy, if she's never done jujitsu before, out of the gate, she's not used to having someone on her and grinding and and that physical contact. And it's that, um, that right there alone can mentally paralyze someone. Yeah. Whereas when you train jujitsu or, you know, you train boxing, but jujitsu is a very close contact. So you're used to that. You're used to having these people grind. You don't, you're over that piece mentally. And so it's the same thing with training for combat. We have the explosions going off. We have the chaos. We have the machine gun fire. We get inoculated against the, the shock of that 
to a pretty good degree so that we're more ready for it. I imagine there's a, a wide variation of experience here, but in terms of your experience of violence as a SEAL, is it basically all behind the gun or is it? are you experiencing actually like empty hand fighting as well? Or I'm picturing the experience of a SEAL is, you know, you're assaulting a building. If you have to transition from your rifle to your handgun, something has already gone wrong, right? Like that's already an aberration. And if you find yourself fighting empty hand with something like grappling with somebody, things have gone totally haywire. Is, is it possible to be a SEAL Whose, whose experience of violence is shooting a rifle and never never having to have any kind of physical or like you would consider grappling or, or, or striking skills, or is that not at all the standard experience? Picture this. Just to take your scenario, you're assaulting a building. You approach the building. You blow open the door. You get in there. And, and who's in there? Is it a guy with a gun? Okay, he's getting shot. Mm-hmm. What about the guy that doesn't have a gun? What about the guy that just rushes at you without a gun? And... Now, it's a decision, sure. If you feel like your life is threatened, you can shoot him, you can kill him. But you might also say, oh, this guy's coming at me. Okay, does he have a suicide vest? Okay, I'm going to shoot him. But what if he's scared or starts to run or stands there but doesn't listen to you, doesn't get down? You have to put your hands on the person. You have to take him down. So SEALs all the time, Army guys, everybody, when you're in the military, we're not running around shooting everybody. Right. When people are unarmed, you have to take them down. You have to control them. They fight back. They, sometimes they fight back out of fear. Sometimes they fight back because they're hostile. So, yeah, we experience all that, all those levels of violence, and we get in some, you know, definitely get in some good scraps. I, I remember, I'll, I'll tell a story. This was when I first got to Iraq, and we were out doing vehicle interdiction, is what we called it, which there's a, there's a curfew at the time and you're not supposed to be out. And if you're out driving around, then we need to know what you're doing out there. So we're out driving around the, the highways outside of Baghdad. We would take these vehicles down, stop them, search them, see what they are, question them. Hey, what are you doing? You know, you're not supposed to be out here, blah, blah, blah. So we, we do this. We, we pull this vehicle over and I'm standing there and I'm, I'm the commander, right? So I'm not the, the guy tactic. I shouldn't even have to do anything. And that's what I'm doing. I'm just kind of heads up and I'm just looking around and making sure that everything is going well. And all of a sudden I hear a, a voice yell. And it's one of my guys and I kind of hear it from over on the other side of a vehicle. I hear, need an assist, need an assist. And I, oh, okay. So I walk over and it's this guy, the SEAL, who's, who's a buddy of mine. And he's in a scrap <laughs> with this guy. He's in a scrap. And this the SEAL doesn't really know jiu-jitsu. He doesn't really really much of a fighter. He's a great shooter. But here was a situation. He wasn't shooting this guy. This guy was unarmed. Right. So he says, you know, help, help. You know, I need some help. But now he, so he's, he's grappling with a guy now who, but so he has his rifle. Yep, okay. Rifle slung. And we actually have, you know, we, we'd have a bungee cord where you'd stick your rifle. So it's actually kind of out of play. Now you could draw your pistol if you have to. And, and there's, you know, somebody covering for him. So if the guy all of a sudden pulled out a gun, he's getting shot. Right. But you don't want your cover guy that has a gun to have to engage in this grappling situation. So he's calling yeah. for somebody else. So there's a guy covering that if, if all of a sudden this went really bad and the guy pulls out a gun or a knife, he's getting shot immediately. This is game over. So we have that covered, but the guy nonetheless is losing a scrap, you know? Right. Right. So I, I come over and I look at it and, and I'm kind of, I'm, I'm a detached person. It's one of those situations where I'm looking at it. I'm like, that's, oh. some, that's some bad grappling. I'm like, yeah, you know, this guy's guard is obviously need some work. We'll work on that later. But I look at the guy and I come over and I just, just kind of 
put my weight and I do a knee on stomach on the on mm. the Iraqi guy, and I say, "Hey, bro, he's just scared, you know, just 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 relax." And I look at the Iraqi guy and I go, "Shway, shway," which is you know, just relax. It's okay. I say, "Shway, shway," and as the second shway comes out of my mouth, my the other seal cracks this guy, <laughs> cracks him in the face, and I go, "Dude, it's okay. I got it. Just it's okay." Right. And I look back at the guy. It's hey. It's okay, shway, relax. I kind of, I kind of motioned the other guy off. Got the guy to relax, calm down. Okay, hey, look, just, just everyone relax. But my point in telling the story is because I was experienced at fighting and and knew jujitsu and 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 martial arts. It was a very easy situation for me to enter into and control in a in a proper manner. It, whereas the inexperienced guy that didn't have the, the, the fighting skills, it was a harder situation and, and it would have resulted in more damage. I mean, God yeah. forbid this kid, this guy could have been shot if, you know, it, something could escalate like that. Oh, Those yeah. things happen, unfortunately, but it could happen. But my point is that the knowledge, the experience, the familiarity with violence that you're talking about is very helpful when you are thrust into a violent situation. It's very good to have this knowledge. In order to make things less violent, mm. I, I de-escalated the violence, and I've done that my whole career, and that's one of the goals of being well trained: is that you don't have to use excessive violence; you can use less violence. When we start looking at police violence right now, I believe that this is one of the factors that I hope America can start moving towards, where our police officers receive better training for these situations that they're getting into where there's unexpected things happening, they're not fully aware of the picture, and they're going in with a mentality that we could help train them to improve the mentality that they go in there with. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's one of the the unique features of of grappling in general and and jujitsu in particular. It really is what Aikido always claim to be. I mean, it is an ability to control someone and negotiate, and you can you can incrementally increase the violence. And there really is, there's no striking analog to that. If you're going to punch someone in the face to try to subdue them that way, you're just, you're subduing them with brain trauma, right? Mm-hmm. So you're trying to knock them out or you're trying to put them in as much pain that they decide to give up. And with jujitsu, it's not like that at all. I mean, you're, you're talking about going you know, knee on belly with someone, and you're just you're just holding them down with your body weight and saying, "Listen, this this, this can be as painful or not as you want. Just stop what you're doing." But yeah, you see these videos, and I just uh, the interview I did before this. This is, as I said in my last podcast, this is going to be Violence Week on on the, the Waking Up podcast because I interviewed Scotty Reitz, who's a, a really great former SWAT operator who's now a, a firearms instructor. I was telling him about videos that I've recently seen, and, and the, the Gracies circulate some of these videos that are just amazing videos where, of where you see the grappling ignorance of cops that is just, it's just disastrous. Whereas, I, mean, I don't know if you saw this one where there was, you had three cops who were probably 230 or so trying to subdue a smallish guy and not even a guy wasn't even wearing shoes. I'll put this. This video will be on my blog uh, associated with um, the, the Scotty Reeds podcast. So there's a guy in his stocking feet in a McDonald's, you know, on a, on a slick, you know, linoleum floor, and you've got three big cops trying to figure out how to subdue him. 
and they just had no idea. I mean, one guy tries a front kick, you know, that doesn't land, and then one, eventually they tase him repeatedly, just as the because they just could not figure out how to get this guy on the ground and cuffed. So it's really it is it's just a an excruciating lack of training that you see in in some of these videos, and it's when you just extrapolate that out over a, a nation of three hundred million people, some of whom keep colliding with cops, it's depressing. But yeah, I share your hope that. The, the kind of knowledge that you represent gets gets uh, disseminated more widely. I certainly hope so. Yeah. Well, listen, Jocko, we we have gone um, two hours, and it's been an incredible pleasure to meet you and and talk to you. And um, I just I wish you the best of luck with everything you're doing. Your your podcast is great, and uh, your book is great, and I look forward to finishing it. Joe Rogan went on about this endlessly, and and that's he basically you know arm barred you into doing a podcast. But it's just you're part of the 1% of the 1% of people who can talk with authority about this range of human experience. And we really need it. I look forward to following everything you do going forward. Thanks very much. That's uh, very humbling to hear. And and I'll do my best to, to carry that out. Thank you. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. you also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website. At samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.